let's pray this together this morning. Declaration that we, or something that we've been praying through this Easter series. Sing together, pray together with boldness, with conviction, with confidence. Lord Jesus, by your resurrection, show us today the light of life. By your resurrection, speak to us the word of life. By your resurrection, nourish us with the bread of life. By your resurrection, pour out on us the spirit of life. By your resurrection, prepare for us the crown of life. May the truth of your triumph over death inform and shape our lives for your glory. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Hope you're doing well, and I'm really glad that you've joined us today in the three-day weekend. Uh, raise your hand if you like a Bible. We've got sermon notes that I hope you were given as you walked in today, and the two texts from which I'm speaking are on those sermon notes, but it's always helpful to have the Bible in hand. You can check the context, and you'll learn even more. So raise your hand if you like a Bible, and uh, one will be handed to you. Um, also, if this is your first Sunday here, I'm so glad you came. Welcome. Glad you're here. Um, we've got an information table in the back by the staircase with some content about the church if you're interested in that. And if you just like a, a good bag of coffee, please go ahead. We've got um, these bags of coffee for, for first-time guests, our gift to you. So please uh, help yourself to one of those and let somebody say hi to you over there. We baptized four people last Sunday, which was awesome. We always get questions after a baptism. When's the next one? It's 929, September 29th is our fall baptism. We wrote a little book called Preparing for Baptism, and this is what we use to train and prepare folks. These are available for free, of course, on the information table and in the bookstore. If you're just curious, interested, would like to read up a little bit, very simple and straightforward um, preparation there for baptism, all right? Good. Just one more thing. Um, I'm aware that there may be somebody here that uh, lost a loved one while they were serving in the, um, in the armed forces. Is there anyone here today that, that, that lost a loved one? Okay. Not, not today. How about, is there anyone here who has served at some point in your life in the armed forces? If so, would you stand up just so we can uh, express our appreciation for your commitment and your service? Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Bob. Amen. All right. Well, this morning, I got a real simple outline. I'm going to talk about triumph, talk about courage, and then I'm going to go back and talk about triumph again. All right? The radical claim of the early followers of Jesus is that Jesus triumphed over death. That he triumphed over death. The even more radical claim is that he triumphed over death by submitting to it, by enduring it, by going through it. He emptied death of its power, in other words, by taking death's best shot, by dying, actually dying, and then rising from the dead. We call that the resurrection, the resurrection. In other words, what Jesus did was radical. He triumphed over death. The way he did it was even more radical. He triumphed over death by dying and then rising again. In a sense, he kind of enters into like the, 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 like, I don't know what it is, like the hole of death and then just reverses right back out of it and brings life out of death. 
reverses the, the, um, the pull of death. So the way to triumph for Jesus runs through death. And that method, that method of triumphing should make us stop and go, hmm, notice that, pay attention to that. That is a strange way to win. Death is a strange way to victory. When you die, it looks like you're losing. Right? And the idea that Jesus, the one who was killed on a Roman cross, was triumphing over death, I mean, it sounds strange to us to, us to say that he was triumphing over death on the cross. It would have sounded even more strange to people in first century Roman territories like Jerusalem. When you die on a Roman cross, it really looks like you're losing. It, I mean, it's pretty blatant and graphic. Thousands of people died on Roman crosses. Jesus is the most famous, but thousands of others died on Roman crosses. The ancient Jewish historian named Josephus tells of several accounts of mass crucifixions, including a time when 2,000 Jews were crucified at the same time. Uh, on Roman crosses by Rome in an effort to demonstrate and to communicate to everyone, you don't mess with Rome. You don't challenge us. We are in charge here. Um, there were certainly much faster ways to kill people, but if your goal was to control people through fear, there's probably not a more effective way to kill people than to kill people uh, with the cross, right? Consequently, crucifixion was the method uh, for dealing with those who dared challenge the control and the power of Rome. So first century people, they knew how this worked. They saw it take place. If they hadn't actually seen it with their own eyes, they certainly heard about it. And often high-profile crucifixions would take place at the end of a big parade. This was called a triumph, as I explained on Easter morning. A triumph, the word is triambuo in Greek, only shows up twice in the whole Bible, both times by Paul. It's translated into the English word triumph. And the main event of a triumph was the triumphal procession. That's the parade, something like a victory parade that we would do after a Super Bowl or an NBA championship or something like that, except because it's a Roman parade, there's a ton of violence involved. So out in front of the parade, there would be these animals that would be sacrificed Right, And so even as the parade is playing out, you're smelling the aroma of the burning meat uh, being prepared as a sacrifice. In the middle, the centerpiece of the parade is the triumphator, the winner, the conquering general, the one who's in charge, the one who's just gained power. He would be in the middle of the procession. And then way in the back, trailing behind, usually bound and exposed as public humiliation would be those that the triumphator had conquered, the, the leaders of the, of the rebels that had been put down, or the leaders of the village that had been crushed uh, by Rome, the prisoners of war, the defeated ones, they would be bound and exposed and marched through the streets as this, and then as a dramatic climax to the triumph, they would be, they would be killed, um, usually on crosses. So a triumph in ancient Rome in the time of Jesus was this graphic demonstration of power where the winner was clearly in charge, clearly powerful, and the loser was clearly powerless. In fact, not just defeated, but totally destroyed in the end. But this was a deeply embedded cultural reality in the time of Jesus. This was a deeply embedded cultural reality. So understand that this was profound racial prejudice plus economic control, plus military might, plus perverse, dramatic entertainment, all wrapped into one big cultural narrative in order to demonstrate 
who wins and who loses in order to make that known to everyone who was, was looking. By the way, did you know also that our word circus comes from the same narrative, the same kind of triumphant procession parade out of Rome? In fact, there's this big stretch of dirt that you can see from the Colosseum. Even today, we saw it last summer when we were in Italy. It's called the Circus Maximus. The, the Colosseum is up in the upper left-hand corner of that picture, and there's this big field, and that's where more Christians were killed than anywhere else in Rome. This image, this story, this narrative was well-known. Everybody knew how this worked. Everybody knew the story, and the main players were really, really clear. There was a clear winner, and there was a clear loser. Then... About 30 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, there's this brilliant and zealous Jewish leader turned Christian preacher named Paul. And he's in a Roman jail for preaching that Jesus is the king. The emperor of Rome is not the king. Jesus is the king, according to Paul. So he's imprisoned because he believes that the one in charge is this Jewish carpenter turned rabbi named Jesus. So he is writing a letter, we know it as Colossians, in jail. And at the end of the soaring opening statement in Colossians, our chapter 1, where Paul talks about the divinity of Jesus, Paul makes this radical claim about Jesus' triumph, he or about Jesus' death. He refers to Jesus' death on the cross as his triumph, as his triumph. Um, this graphic demonstration in which the winner, in Paul's eyes, that's Christ, was seen as and revealed to be the most powerful, whereas the loser was clearly and finally rendered powerless and, not, in fact, not just defeated, but utterly destroyed. So what Paul's doing with this well-known cultural, na cultural narrative is he's just flipping it. He's totally flipping it. What looks like a win is not a win. What looks like a loss is actually not a loss. This is what Paul says. Having disarmed, this is Colossians 2.15, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So it's difficult to imagine Paul choosing a more intense verb for this statement. Triumphing? Like, what are you saying Jesus is doing? He's triumphing. And, and where exactly is he triumphing? On the cross pierced and stripped and suffocating. Jesus' crucifixion looked a lot like a typical Roman triumph, but Paul is saying what's actually happening there is Jesus is winning. Jesus is triumphing. What exactly is he triumphing over? Paul says the powers and the authorities. And he's not just talking about the soldiers that are crucifying him or the Roman state. He's talking about the evil powers behind violence, behind greed, behind systemic oppression. He's talking about selfishness that has long infected the human condition. He's talking about that power that's behind fear, that motivates fear. He's talking about the root of acedia. He's talking about that pull toward unworthiness. Paul's talking about the source of disease. He's talking about the curse. He's saying all these unseen spiritual powers and authorities, Jesus is disarming them. And Paul's making this radical claim that Jesus is not just disarming evil, but parading them, parading evil through the streets, exposing evil as impotent, as powerless, triumphing over evil on the cross. I mean, it's a radical statement. 
Uh, there's an American pastor who passed away a few years ago named Eugene Peterson. He paraphrased the New Testament, and his passage on this, his rendition goes like this. He stripped, same verse, he stripped all of the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. That's how Peterson puts it. Okay, so the radical claim is that Jesus triumphs over sin and death and evil as the root of it all. And I can imagine Timothy, who is Paul's scribe at this point in his life, maybe outside of the prison cell, you know, through a window, or we saw one place in Rome where, where Paul was imprisoned, and it's basically a hole in the ground, and you look down through a hole in the ground, and you see this like cave. Maybe Timothy's up, and he's writing stuff as Paul is dictating his letter to Timothy. And I can imagine Timothy hearing this verse and going, did you say triumphing? <laughs> Are you sure you want to use the word triumphing here, Paul? That's a really loaded phrase in Roman culture, right? That communicates a lot. Are you sure that's the word you want to use? And I can imagine Paul saying, it's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I want to use. On the cross, Jesus triumphed over the powers of evil. That's his message. Now, it doesn't look like this is happening on Friday, does it, when Jesus is being killed? But this is what is revealed to be true on Sunday morning when Jesus resurrects, rises from the dead. And so, Resurrection becomes the central message of the Christian church. In all of the sermons that you read in the book of Acts, it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the question that we've been asking since Easter Sunday six weeks ago is, what difference does that make? What difference did it make for them, early Christians, first century Christians, second century Christians, third century Christians, 21st century Christians? What difference does it make for us? That's what we've been asking since Easter and we've identified several practical ramifications of the resurrection. What does that mean? Changes in the way you see the world and changes in the way you live in the world. Changes in the way you see reality, which lead to changes in the way you live your life. Some of you have said to me um, in, our, in our conversations over the last several weeks, okay, so you're talking about a shift in perspective because of the resurrection. Yes, that doesn't feel real practical to me. And I've heard you, and we've had some good conversations, several folks in this community and I have, and I've thought about that a lot. And in the end, I think a change in the way you see something is, is radically practical. I think it's very practical. I think if a, sh a shift in your perspective on something points you in a completely different direction, potentially. I think a change in the way you see something opens up a whole different set of options, a whole different set of actions because of this change, this opened view, this new perspective. I didn't see this before. So I hear Paul saying, if the cross is Jesus' defeat, we're, we're hopeless. <laughs> but it's not his defeat, it's his triumph. And if we can shift our perspective and we can see the cross as triumph, well, that changes everything, and that changes everything very practically. Like what? Well, we've covered a few examples. Here they are really, really quickly. We've pointed out that because of the resurrection, adversity is overcome. You will have trouble in the world, but Jesus says, in me, you can have peace. So peace can overcome adversity because of the resurrection. Another example, acedia, this numb 
dead apathy that often strikes in the middle of the day, in the middle of the marriage, in the middle of life, it can be overcome by joy. I can choose joy right in the midst of this deadness that sneaks in in the middle. I can choose joy because of the resurrection. Sickness is overcome because of the resurrection. I can be healed. Even my own unworthiness because of my sin is overcome. I am blessed. I am loved. I am forgiven. Jesus declares that I am worthy and I am welcomed into the presence of God. Right? So here's one more. It's actually the first th one of the first things we notice in the early Christians. It's one of the first indications, in other words, that the resurrection is actually making a difference in their life. Here it is. Courage. We see remarkable courage. We see this otherwise unexplainable change from fear to courage. I want to say that because of the resurrection, courage overcomes fear. The record of the Jesus movement, the 30 years following the resurrection, is called the Book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. It's in your Bible right after the Gospels. The record of the next 30 years or so is uh, the, like the epistles, the, the letters that Paul writes to the churches and others like people that walked with Jesus, Peter, James, John, the letters that these people write. There's also extra biblical accounts of the movements called Christians, called the way, called the believers, uh, including stories of martyrdoms that you can find in this book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. And the overwhelming theme in all of these early records of the Christian community is courage. It's courage. It's courage that overcomes the fear of being outcast from your community. Kicked out of the Jewish culture because you embrace Jesus as Messiah. Courage that overcomes that. Courage that overcomes the fear of violent political persecution which was a thing starting in about Acts 4 or before. Courage that overcomes the real threat of death. So the effort to completely eradicate the Christian community from existence was a full-throttled enterprise of both the Jewish elite and increasingly by the Roman state through possession of property, through imprisonment, through physical threats, those in religious and political power, they sought to destroy what turns out to be an inextinguishable band of believers in Jesus Christ. But the Christian church not only survives during this season, it explodes during the first 300 years following uh, the resurrection. Here's some estimates of the size of the Christian community in the first 300 years. About the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, there's about 100 people following Jesus in the whole world. By 200 AD, there's 200,000 Christians on the planet. 50 years later, Christianity reaches a million people for the first time. 50 years after that, by the year 300, it's estimated that there are between 5 and 8 million Christians. Now, you know what's so interesting about this 300 mark, this 300-year period of time? Why does that matter? Because Christianity is illegal that whole time, right? It's not until the Edict of Milan in 313 where, where Rome says, Christianity is legal. Up until then, it's not legal. And there's all kinds of persecution. Consequently, Christianity happened in, in Christian worship happened in secret, in homes, in the upper rooms, away from the street, 
in the catacombs late at night. This is where if your devotion to Jesus was recognized by the Jewish establishment, you would be ostracized by, uh, by the Jewish establishment from Sabbath worship. You would not be allowed to come into the temple. One of the reasons, one of the practical reasons, Christians shift from worshiping on Saturdays to Sundays. Then at 70 AD, Rome destroys the temple, the Jewish temple, and it only intensifies for the Christians at that point. If your baptism is discovered in the second century, you get thrown into the Colosseum with a lion. It's called entertainment. People paid tickets and watched. I mean, it's disgusting. My point in bringing this up is to say that there's all kinds of cultural and political reasons for Christians to be afraid, very afraid, for the first 300 years especially. And yet, what we read after an account after account is Christians full of courage, full of courage. Here's a couple examples. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested. Who arrests them? The Sanhedrin, the same group of leaders that arrested Jesus a couple months ago. Oh, we've seen this play out. It didn't end well for Jesus. Now they got Peter and, uh, and John, and they, arrest, they rough them up. They spend the night in jail. They say, don't you ever talk to anybody in the name of Jesus again. They let them go, and they go right to the temple. They start preaching in the name of Jesus again. Like, where did that come from? These guys were running away a couple of months ago. Right now, courage has overcome fear. Another example, Acts chapter 7, there's this guy named Stephen. He's a young man selected from the community to care for the widows who are joining the Christian movement. He's a great preacher. He gets mugged on the side of the road by a mob set up by the Jewish leaders. They take him outside the city. Instead of cowering in fear, he starts preaching to them. And through this amazing sermon, he reveals the blindness, the stubborn blindness of the Jewish um, establishment. And so what's their response? They start throwing rocks at him. They start killing him with rocks. What's his response to that? He prays that God will forgive the people he's, that are killing him. I mean, it's, it's like, where did this suddenly come from? Where did this courage, it's, it came from the resurrection. It came from the resurrection. Christians are full of courage. Fear in Christians is being eradicated and replaced by courage. There are countless other examples. Christians um, rep uh, taking the place of other Christians who are being sent to jail so that their kids wouldn't end up being orphans. Christians facing death while singing hymns as they're lighting the, they called them faggots on the ground, like lighten this thing up. Christians caring for the hungry in Rome and for the, for the dying, even though if you show up at the Christian soup kitchen, you're going to expose yourself. They will know, oh, there's another one. He's been underground for a while, but, but they continue to do it. And you know what their logic was? It's profoundly simple. And it's so challenging to me. This was their logic. The Christian's logic. What are they going to do to me? Kill me? <laughs> because in light of the resurrection, that's a pretty limited threat. That's literally their logic. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? You can't touch me because there's a whole other reality that is apparently... You're going, that doesn't quite make sense to me. I know, but it made sense to them because that's what they're pointing to as the reason for their courage and their change in lifestyle, the change in the way they live because of a change in perspective. What's the change in perspective? That wasn't a loss. That was a win. Jesus sacrificed himself for, uh, to overcome this, this problem that has been uh, hanging around our ankles for all of history called death. 
The resurrection of Jesus changes the way people see life, and therefore it changes the way they live life. One example, courage over fear. Courage over fear. Courage which enables real people like you and me to face real threats with a different perspective. The threat of cancer with a different perspective. The threat of unemployment with a different perspective. Even the threat of physical violence with a different perspective. And that leads me to just a final thought this morning. Let's wrap up this triumph series with a final thought on the word triumph. Such a great word. The first time the word is used in the Bible, Paul is saying that Jesus is triumphing over evil by dying on the cross. It's a radical shift of the dominant cultural narrative everybody knew of as triumph. Here's the only other time it shows up in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 2.14. This is what Paul writes. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Isn't that intense? Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. This, this knocks me over, right? He starts by saying, thanks be to God. And so far, I'm all good. Thanks be to God. Yeah, that's fine. Then he says, he grabs a hold of this triumph imagery again. And this time he's focusing on the captives of the triumphal procession. The losers in the back, tied up and exposed. The ones who have lost control. And this is what he's saying. This is the surprising thing that Paul says. The captives are us. We're the captives, right? Paul is thanking God for always leading us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. In other words, Paul sees his life and he sees our lives as part of the spoils of war, part of what Jesus has won in his triumph. According to Paul, Christ wins on the cross. Jesus defeats evil. Jesus wins, evil loses. Jesus, as the triumphing one, therefore takes possession of all of the subjects of the one he just defeated. Who did he just defeat? Evil. Who now does he own? All of the subjects of evil. Who are evil subjects now in triumphal procession to the real King Christ? We are. We are. He is leading us. We are Christ's captives. Paul uses another phrase that's even stronger in another place. We are Christ's slaves, he says. But remember, this whole narrative gets flipped because of Christ. So even though Jesus looks like he's losing, Paul says he's actually winning. So we who are his captives will not be utterly destroyed at the end of the parade. No, it's been flipped. So now we, even though we die, we will live because of the triumph of the resurrection in the end, right? So Paul sees being part of Jesus' triumphal procession not as a sign of his shame. He's not even ashamed of being in jail. No, he sees it as a great honor, right? For the purpose of the profession is to, or the procession is to glorify the triumphant one. That's the whole reason for the parade, to give glory to the one who has triumphed. And so Paul's like, I'm in for that. Count me in for that. And, and, and 
not just that, but Paul actually also calls to mind this other part of the parade or the triumph, which is this burnt offering thing. Remember up in the front, the animals being sacrificed and you can smell it? And he finishes that verse that we just looked at by saying, God uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Oh, he knows exactly what he's talking about. He knows exactly what he's trying to say. To be part of God's triumphal procession, according to Paul and the early Christians, even if it means death, is a blessed thing. It is a blessed thing. Following Jesus may mean for Paul that he will lose his life. In fact, it does. He's beheaded in Rome, right? And he's apparently fine with that. He is remarkably unafraid of that. He tells his own followers, it's time for me to go. I know what's going to happen, and it's time for me to go. He is full of courage. He is writing to the church, and he's urging us to live in light of the resurrection, which makes the old narrative obsolete. Evil has been defeated. Jesus has triumphed. Those seen as captives on their way to destruction are actually the rescued ones on their way to eternal life. It's just powerful. The captives are the rescued ones. Because the crucified is the triumphant one. Our lives become not this dreadful stench of death and defeat, but the pleasing aroma of the knowledge of God. As we surrender our lives to Jesus, as we live for Jesus, as we live like Jesus, as we live in light of the resurrection, we spread the knowledge of a good God wherever we go. The claim, friends, of Christianity is that Jesus has triumphed. That's the claim of Christianity. Jesus has triumphed. And the invitation of Christianity is to embrace Jesus' triumph, even if it means our own lives will be given to him, to surrender everything to Jesus. Everything that I am, everything that I have, it belongs to Jesus. To see ourselves, to use another Pauline phrase, as children of the resurrection. I've been born into this new reality where death is no longer the most powerful thing. Resurrection is the most powerful thing. I am a child of the resurrection. Everything is seen now in light of that. It is to say, that is the, re- the invitation is to, is to say, I am yours, resurrected king. I am yours. It's to surrender our lives again. You have triumphed over sin. You have triumphed over the grave. And you've rescued me from both of those things. You have rescued me from both. I am yours. I am yours. Amen. I want to end with a time of prayer. And um, we discussed and and considered and have decided to just open up, while while Daryl plays a song, um, just to open up the altar and to invite any of you who would like to to come forward to pray at the end of this series in which we focused on the resurrection and the difference that the resurrection makes. The sense is that God has been with us powerfully in the last few weeks. We've sensed him moving in, um, in ways that are, um, that are powerful. And I just wondered if it would be effective and helpful for our own souls to kind of engage in a parade of sorts, to get up out of our seats and to do something physical to to communicate to our hearts the reality of of the triumph of Christ. So you might say, uh, in your seats or in coming forward, you might say, "Here's, here's my trouble. I'm giving my trouble to you. Here's the adversity that I'm facing, and I'm looking for peace, so I'm gonna give this to you. Here's my sickness. I wanna give this to you. 
Here's my sin. I'm, I'm surrendering this to you. Maybe you're saying, here's my life. Uh, yeah, I, I committed my life to you when I was a teenager. Here's my life as a young mom. I'm full of so many details. Here's, I want, I'm going to give my, this season of my life to you. you need, I need you to be the Lord of my life. Here's my life in this season of retirement. I'm, I'm not really sure what to do at this season, but I want to give this season to you. Here I am. I am yours. If you'd like, come forward and let's spend a minute praying together. pray for your grace in this season. We pray for the ability to surrender the things that are actually hindering us to you. You have triumphed over these things, so we give them, we surrender them back. This, let these not become distractions to us. Let these not become barriers between your love for us and our surrender to you, our unity together. Fill us instead with courage in place of fear. face of brokenness and things that look like they've become a disaster, we trust that uh, you triumph in the midst of these kinds of experiences. And I pray for the ability to trust your resurrection as the power that can overcome the things that are facing and hindering us. Give us great courage to live for you, even in the midst of the hard times. May we walk in light of the resurrection for your glory, triumphant King. Amen. 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 
You're welcome to stay up here if you like. Would the rest of you stand up with me, please? May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thanks. Take a minute. Greet one another with the peace of Christ. We'll come right back together.